If you have a Bible with you, you can take it and turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. We're just going to look at three verses this morning. In Matthew chapter 1. Now, Christmas was yesterday, but perhaps there's not a better time to remind ourselves about the meaning of Christmas than after it's over. The excitement of Christmas wraps up, the gifts have been given, the adrenaline begins to die down, family begins to disperse back to their homes, things begin to settle in. And one problem we we face constantly, not even necessarily around the Christmas season, but we face constantly just in general, is that our hearts are often filled with awe while we're in the season, and really, of course, we're still in the Christmas season, given Christmas just yesterday. But after, you know, after being in the awe of the moment, the flame soon dies out. And and, uh, my concern for all of us this morning, for my own heart included, is that Um, In those moments of awe, the flame dying out, we need to be all the more diligent to ensure that while we retire from the Christmas season, we don't retire from its message. Someone had had just asked the other day, what's your your reason for the season? That's a good question to ask, and perhaps a better question maybe would be, what brings you joy this Christmas season? And what will bring you joy, not just this Christmas season, but what's going to extend beyond this Christmas season and keep you joyful until the next one and beyond and to all eternity? Well, I'm going to look at Matthew chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, and we'll read those now. Because this is really the answer when we use that pithy little saying or little rhyme, the reason for the season. Jesus is the reason for the season. And yes, he is, and, and in this passage we get two, two kind of sub-reasons why Jesus is the reason for this season. Verse 21 of Matthew chapter 1 says this, She will bear a son, this is the angel talking to Joseph, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So before, so that's the, so that's the question at hand. What, what, what's really going to bring you joy this Christmas season? What's going to bring you joy beyond the Christmas season? And before we get into really answering uh, that question from this text, I actually want to jump ahead to chapter 2, and we won't spend time reading through that, but really we can jump ahead to Matthew chapter 2 and see how Herod the religious leaders, and even the wise men or the magi would have answered these questions. And this is just by way of illustration. And perhaps this would describe some of you on how you would answer this quick question of uh, what brings you joy this Christmas season. In chapter 2, Herod, Herod's joy, he, his joy was found in political position. And so he opposed Jesus. And so maybe you would say this morning, well, whatever does bring me joy this morning, it's definitely not Jesus. I'm opposed to him, I'm opposed to Christianity, I'm opposed to the church, I'm opposed to the Bible, I'm opposed to it all. You want to be the only one like that. We know that Herod was a descendant from Esau, which is a man in the Old Testament. He was finally given this chance to rule, and when he heard about the birth of a prophesied king, that really really threatened him. 
And so, so because he was feeling threatened by Jesus, he decided to become a threat himself. And we know the story. He, he went and, and had all the, all the boys, the baby boys, two years and younger, murdered, slaughtered, with the hopes of killing Jesus, who was this prophesied king. So Herod opposed Jesus. The religious leaders in chapter 2, if you remember the story, the, the wise men come or the magi come and they talk about this king. We're looking for this king. And Herod goes to the religious leaders. And the religious leaders, they found their joy in religious position. So they just ignored Jesus. And so Herod comes to them and says, hey, where's this, where's this king supposed to be born? And they went right to the passage. I mean, they basically opened their Bibles, so to speak, and they told Herod exactly where Jesus was to be born. They didn't need Google or commentary or any discussion. They knew exactly where Jesus was to be born. And they heard that, hey, the Messiah was here. And they, they were five miles from Jesus. And they were so ignorant and so apathetic that they didn't even care to travel that five miles to see if it was really true that the Messiah had been born. They didn't want to travel those five miles to Bethlehem to worship the one who those very ancient words spoke of. And so as we look at those two illustrations, perhaps you would say you might identify with Herod, someone who opposes Jesus and wants nothing to do with Jesus. Or if you do want something to do with Jesus, it's got to be on your terms. Or maybe you're like the religious leaders and really you just... You kind of like the religious position you're in. You like the, I, the fact that maybe you're doing some religious things, maybe doing some good things. But really, you ignore Jesus, the true Savior. We have the Magi. We, these are the example of those who found their joy in Jesus himself. And they surrendered to him. And they would travel probably hundreds of miles to get there to worship him. Charles Spurgeon once prayed, he says, Lord, send us converts like these wise men. Send us men and women in great multitudes who will cheerfully obey, who will find a delight in worshiping Christ, in paying him homage, giving to his service, and in giving themselves to him. So anger, apathy, or adoration. What's your heart been like this season? What's your heart been like the last couple days? Anger, apathy, or adoration of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we now rewind and go back to Matthew chapter 1, we're going to look at three verses, but these three verses really encapsulate the, the reason for the season and really showing us in Jesus Christ why he is the reason for the seasons, two reasons why Jesus is the reason for the season. First, Jesus saves us. Second, Jesus is with us. Those are the two reasons uh, on how we find sustained joy in the Christmas season. So that's what we're going to look at, those two things. Number one, Jesus saves us. Jesus saves us. Two reasons for Christmas that leads to sustained joy, Jesus saves us. And you might be thinking, well, no, duh, I get that. But Jesus, the name Jesus, uh, isn't just the name that was given to him. It's actually the purpose of his name. So he was named Jesus. The, 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 Old Testament, the Old Testament name for Jesus is Joshua. And, the, and in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew language, Joshua means Jehovah saves. And so now you have, you have the, the, the Greek version of Joshua, Jesus. And Jesus means Savior. 
Jesus means Savior. He was the one who would bring the promised salvation of God that the, that the Old Testament spoke about, in which the Jewish people would have been so familiar with. Now, when it comes to Joshua, or Jesus, as we know him, there are actually two Joshuas of the Old Testament that point towards this third Joshua, the Lord Jesus. The first one is, is uh, the Joshua that took uh, the reins of leadership for Moses. You remember him? And he led the people to the promised land, across the Jordan. And while Joshua led the people into the promised land, it wasn't the end of the story. Because Joshua, he led the people into some geographical borders of the land. But they never established a spiritual rest that God offered. As a matter of fact, we know as the story goes, after this Joshua, the sin and rebellion and stubbornness and ignorance of the people kept them from experiencing the true rest that God wanted to offer them. He didn't want to just place them inside some geographical boundary. He wanted to give them rest. And this is why Hebrews chapter 4 talks about this, this Joshua, as faithful as Joshua, this Old Testament Joshua was, he pointed to the true Joshua, or Jesus. Hebrews 4, 8 through 10 says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken about another day. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as, as God did from his. What is he saying here? That Joshua, that great Joshua from the Old Testament, he was pointing ahead to the true Joshua, to the true Jesus. He would give his people rest. And that word rest, it, mean, it, it means the whole, the whole spiritual life of the Christian. It means resting from your works in trying to earn God's favor and resting in the provision of the Lord Jesus when he died and rose again. It means resting every single day and trusting in him and walking by faith each and every moment of our lives. It means resting in the hope as we look forward to the eternal rest that is to come. Joshua didn't provide that for him. Jesus did. So we have this word, Jesus is our Savior. Now there's a second Joshua, and maybe you wouldn't be as familiar with this one, but it's uh, the high priest who would rebuild the temple of the Lord, and we read about him in Zechariah chapter 6, verses 11 through 13, where the Lord says, take from them silver and gold and make a crown. Interesting, a priest with a crown. And make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold the man whose name is the branch. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Another king priest who is the branch? For he shall branch out of this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Now, Jesus was a king priest in the order of Melchizedek, so, but even here we have, we have a pointer to the Lord Jesus, this Joshua of the Old Testament. Jesus is the branch from the stump of Jesse. We read that in Isaiah. He is the king priest. Yet Jesus, as our priest, again, everything in the Old Testament pointing to Jesus, has a greater title and a greater ministry than any of the Old Testament priests could ever have. No priest could administer grace, mercy, peace, and sympathy like the Lord Jesus Christ. Which brings us to the third Joshua. Our Joshua, our Jesus. We're in Psalm chapter 130, verse 7 and 8. 
this is our Joshua, this is our Jesus. The other one's pointing to him, our Jesus. As it says in Psalm chapter 130, verse 7 and 8, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And we got this phrase, and he will save, he will redeem his people from their sins. The purpose of Jesus was to save sinners. Now notice here uh, in, verse, in verse 21, you're going to bear a son, you're going to call his name Jesus. Why are you going to name him Jesus? Because he's going to save his people from what? Their sins. Their sins. He's going to save his people from their sins. That's not the salvation they wanted. As a matter of fact, let's turn this to you. What do you want Jesus to save you from? What do you want Jesus to save you from? If you could say right now, if there's anything I could have, if I could pick anything in the world for Jesus to save me from, if I could pick one thing, what would it be? Now, the people of Israel wanted to be rescued from the Roman Empire. Now, if Jesus' primary goal and primary purpose was to save his people from the Roman Empire, he would have come as a conqueror. Now, he is a conqueror, but not in the way they expected. Beyond that, if Jesus' goal, primary goal, was to save from disease, he would have come as a healer. Now, he is a healer, and he did heal. On this earth, but he isn't the healer many expect him to be. If Jesus' primary goal was to save us from financial trouble, then he would have come as a rich man. And he is rich, and he has riches, and he gives riches, but not in the way many people expect. We, along with Israel, along with so many today, expect Jesus to provide an earthly salvation. But if Jesus' primary purpose was to save from sin, then he would have come as a sacrifice. And that's exactly what he did. And in that sacrifice for sins, he would conquer. He conquers sin and death. Like 1 Corinthians 15 says, death is swallowed up in victory. And all the sin that brings the sting of death is swallowed up as well. As a sacrifice, he would heal. He would heal those stricken with disease, the disease of sin and sorrow, Isaiah 52. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. As a sacrifice, he would give riches. And he does give riches, but it's the riches of his mercy and grace Ephesians 2 says, we are saved by grace so that in the coming ages, God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And as a sacrifice, Jesus did all that. And we're rescued from sin. That is the fundamental purpose of Christ's coming. And think about it, Jesus knew what awaited him. He knew what awaited him when he came to this earth. And he came to die for the sins which we and our first parents brought on ourselves. He came to die for sinners. And it comes to us from him through pure love. God gains nothing. God gains nothing by my salvation. And God gains nothing by your salvation. It comes to us through his pure and holy and perfect love. 
And so, yeah, I think, it's, I think it's fitting we take a day, isn't it, once a year to remember this God who condescended to come as a man fully knowing what was going to happen to him so that he could come as a sacrifice and redeem us and save us from our sins. Now, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, where it says he will save his people from their sins, this wasn't just for the Jewish people, and it wasn't just for the first century. Jesus still saves today. And he saves all who place their faith in him. And, as we're going to sing in closing, we can continue to go tell others that Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Which brings us to our second point for this morning. Not only Jesus saves us, Jesus, that's the purpose of his name, but Jesus is with us. And then we have the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is the promise of his name. If Jesus, Savior, is the purpose of his name, this title, Emmanuel, is the promise of his name. God with us. He says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. So God, the dream, the announcement, the people, the circumstance, everything set in place for God to fulfill his plan. But even beyond the immediate Matthew is actually looking back, and he saw another moment in Israel's history that actually pointed forward to this Messiah. He goes back to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, where he quotes Isaiah in verse 23, and he says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Jesus. Now, there was an immediate fulfillment to this back with King Ahaz. If you don't know the story, that's okay. What was going on in Isaiah chapter 7 is King Ahaz was kind of under threat of these two huge monstrous nations. And God actually tells King Ahaz, he says, hey, ask a sign from me. Tell me to give you a sign that I'm going to get you through this. And Ahaz says, no way. No, I'm not doing that. And so God says, fine, I'll give you a sign. And then it's this, this is what God says. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, the immediate fulfillment of that is actually in Isaiah chapter 8, where Isaiah the prophet actually has sons. And their names each talk about God delivering King Ahaz and the, the Jewish people. But obviously the far view fulfillment of this verse is what we're reading right now. The Lord Jesus, that again, God is offering deliverance. But this time, it's not deliverance from some nation. It's not deliverance from anything we necessarily deal with here on this earth, at least not at the immediate. But it's deliverance from sins through the virgin-born Jesus who is the Savior. So Matthew is looking at all this and saying, man, there's, there's, you know, I heard one, I can't remember, I think it was Charles Spurgeon. This is just coming to my mind, so if this doesn't work out, I apologize. Uh, but was, I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said he can't wait to get to heaven and find out all, so many more places in Scripture where Jesus could be seen, but we just couldn't see it. Like Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Whoever would have thought that one day that would mean that this is, this is the Messiah coming. God with us, the promise of his name. It's a title and it's a description of who Jesus is. The word has become flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. God with us. Now, God sa Jesus saves us, God saves us, and Jesus is with us. Those two are inextricably tied together. You can't have one without the other or you certainly don't have one without the other, 
uh, in our family through this season, we've been doing a, a de- an Advent devotional. Maybe you, maybe you do something like that with your family. Um, we've been doing it um, for, for most this month and been trying to keep up on, on the storyline. We've, we've missed a few days. I want you to know that. Everything, one day, as a matter of fact, I think we did four. We're just trying to, you know, pound right through them. Um, as we're getting closer, we got to get, we got to get to baby Jesus before, you know, before Christmas. Otherwise it's going to be February. We're going to be talking about the birth of Jesus. But as I was going through this with the kids and, and Amber had made little, um, little kind of picture things out of that foam stuff that we hang up. And so it reminds us of what we've talked through. And as I've walked through this with the family, I've noticed this theme more and more of Jesus, of God saving and God being with his people always together. And so we go, well, this is Adam. They sinned against God. But God saved them, and then God was with them, albeit in a very much more deeply veiled way than in the garden. This is Noah. God saved him and his family, and then remembered him on the ark and was with him. And we keep going through, and this is Abraham. Abraham is an idolater. He, he was a pagan. He was a worshiper of false idols, but God saved him. And then he promised he was going to be with them. And then he had a son, Isaac. And God saved Isaac in more ways than one. And promised he'd be with him. And then Jacob, same promise. And then there was Joseph. And guess what happened with Joseph? God saved him. And then God promised to be with him. And God was with him. And then after Joseph, you get to this guy named Moses. And Moses is used by God to deliver the people of Israel out of slavery from Egypt. And what does God do? He saves them, and then he goes with them through the wilderness. And then there's Joshua, who followed up Moses. And Joshua, of course, we don't necessarily learn of his salvation story, but certainly God saves him. And God says, listen, don't be afraid, don't be discouraged, because I'm with you. And then there's this woman named Rahab. She's a pagan prostitute of Jericho. And God saves her. And then God is very obviously with her because she ends up in the very family line of the Lord Jesus. And then we go on and there's this woman named Ruth. Another pagan idol worshiper. And God saves her. And God goes with her. And guides her every step. And she too would become one of the great-great-grandparents of the Lord Jesus. And then there's this time of rebellion when the people start to just, just in the most hardcore way, reject God. And God sends them prophets. And of course he's saved and he was with the prophets, like Jeremiah, where God basically said, nothing's going to become, in Isaiah, listen, your ministry is not going to really do anything here, but I'll be with you. And so God is telling his people that, that listen, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna be disciplined for your sin. But after all this is over, my prophets are here to tell you that there is, there is coming a man who will be born of a virgin. And he will save you. And he will be with you. It will be God in flesh. All this stuff. All this stuff in the Old Testament, they were all pointers. They were all shadows. They were all being pulled along by God's ultimate purpose to come as a man himself in the second person of the Trinity to dwell among us, die on the cross, rise from the dead, ascend into heaven, and be with us. I love the clarity 
of what Matthew is saying here. Because Matthew takes it upon himself to interpret a foreign word. They shall call his name Emmanuel. And then he interprets it for us. This doesn't happen very often in scripture. Which means God with us. God wants us to understand the meaning and the promise of Jesus' name and title. He saves us. He is with us. He saves us and he is with us. No matter how dark the times get. Just the other day, and only a few of you know this, but I, on Wednesday actually of this past week, I took a solo trip to Lincoln, Nebraska to share in the tears and sorrows and hugs and comfort of a family very close to me. I'd grown up in the church with this family. It was a mom, a dad, four kids, and the four kids were all older than me, but the younger two boys very close with as we grew up in high school and church together. Of course, they now are adults and have kids of their own. Well, the mom, the ball of joy of the family, Jolene, she passed away unexpectedly last Saturday. And at her funeral, her visitation was on Wednesday, the funeral was on Thursday, the daughter who shared memories at the funeral said, my mom always said that whatever brings us closer to God is a blessing. She says, I can't see how this is a blessing, but I know I need God in these moments. Whatever brings us closer to God is a blessing. That's true. But here's also the beauty that can be found in the ashes of moments like this. Not only do these moments, moments draw us closer to God, but these are the very moments that draw, drew God to us. All these tears around the Christmas season are the very reason why God came to us. All these sins and failures and the mistakes and the, the, the intentional, deliberate rebellion against God, those are the very reasons God came to us. And for us. And it's the very reason that after he saves us, he's with us. Often, after the loss of a loved one, we, we remember what they, what they said over and over again, like this daughter did. But we ought not to forget what Jesus said after he died and rose again. Remember what he said in Matthew 28? He said, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The tyranny of sin and death and sorrow would not dethrone the God of this world And so, in order to ensure that sin and death and sorrow would not dethrone him, nor Satan would dethrone him, he humbled himself, and in the eternal second person of the Trinity, he took on flesh, the Lord Jesus. He died on the cross, rose from the dead, and he sealed forever the defeat of sin and death. And all who trust in Christ as their Savior are brought into that victory, and they share in that victory. A few points of application, I think, come from this, and we could list dozens. But I want to ask you this question. What, what, what are the most difficult situations in your life right now? And I want you to think of them. What are the most difficult situations in your life right now? Maybe it's sin. Or maybe it's a past sin. Or a mistake, or Something like that, and, and you're, just, you're discouraged. Jesus saves, which means God forgives. 
I was reminded recently that we can't go through life just looking in the rear view mirror. We can get so discouraged by our past failings, but Jesus rescuing us and Jesus saving us from our sins reminds us that we don't need to dwell on the sins and failures that God has forgotten. Perhaps pride has crept into your life. You find yourself demanding more of others than what you yourself are committed to. Anger stirs up whenever something or someone gets in the way of comfort, expediency, or ease. We look at Christ and we see the humiliation of God. We should all marvel that God would come to us. We should respond in humility towards God and towards others. And as such, none of us should give a second thought about denying ourselves and going to him. Perhaps your most difficult situation right now is sorrow. And maybe it's sorrow from, for many reasons why sorrow may come into our lives. God is with you to bring you measures of grace and comfort. Day by day, with each passing moment, the God who is with you can give you the strength to meet your sorrows each and every day. The other thing I thought of just as I was thinking through this passage is perhaps you're struggling in your prayer life. And the reason why I thought of this is because that was me recently. I just had a loss of what to pray. And God actually brought this passage to mind. As I was thinking, oh, what do I pray? I don't know what to pray for. I don't know what to say. And we, I thank the Lord that Romans 8 says the Spirit helps us. But, you know, sometimes, sometimes we're still not making much progress on our own even then. And these three verses helped me because it, it, I had to ask myself if I believed this passage. If I really believed this passage. If I really believed in what I'm preaching to you right now, because if I really believe that I am in constant need of saving grace and the sovereign presence of God every moment, then I can't waste my time on self-sufficiency. There should never be anything that I don't need to pray for. I should never forget or not know what to pray for because I am totally insufficient in and of myself. So we need the saving grace and the sovereign presence of God at every single moment in our lives. As we move on from here, and whether you've got sins dangling over your head, or maybe sins whispering to you from the past, maybe you have sorrows swarming your heart even now, maybe you still have more tears to shed in the coming days, even though Christmas is behind. Maybe you've got just stuff in your heart that's just making you angry and apathetic and you've got pride. Maybe you're just, you feel dull and dead in your prayer life. You feel dull and dead in your, you, when you read the Bible and you just, you, just, you just don't know where to go. You don't know where to look. I would ask you the same question that I asked myself. Do you really believe this passage? Do you really believe that Jesus saves, that Jesus has saved you? Has Jesus saved you? Saved you? Has Jesus saved you? Have you placed your faith in him to be forgiven and have eternal life? He wants to save you. And then the promise of his name is that he'll be with you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he'll be with you? Jesus saves us. Jesus is with us. That's enough of the reason for this season for us. Let's pray. 
What greater hope can we have, our Father God, than that you sent your Son, Jesus? And, Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming, these undeserving people. You gain, you gain nothing in and of yourself. You're totally self-sufficient. You gain nothing by saving us. But, Lord, you do say in Hebrews that you got this inheritance of all those you died to save. And, Lord, we rejoice in that. So whether it's sins, whether it's sins that are conquering us right now, sins that are whispering to us from the past, whether it's a dull spiritual life seemingly right now, whether it's sorrows that are sorrow after sorrow just keep pouring in on us this season, Lord, give us all hearts to truly believe that Jesus saves us, Jesus is with us. Praise in Jesus' name, amen.